This podcast contains explicit language, but it's probably not my fault. Don't worry, I'll talk to the other hosts. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 20th, 2023. On this week's show, The Ringer's Lindsay Jones will join us to talk about the big brouhaha over sideline reporting, making stuff up, and women fighting for a place in sports journalism. We'll also discuss Miami Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel and whether he'll succeed at bringing a new leadership style to the NFL. Finally, The Wall Street Journal's Joshua Robinson will be here to tell us about the glitz and glamour and flying manhole covers at Formula One's Las Vegas Grand Prix. I am in Washington, D.C., and I am the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. The first episode of our new season, One Year 1990, is out this week on Wednesday, just in time for Thanksgiving travel. It's about Pizza Hut. No fooling. So please subscribe and check it out. You'll like it. Also in D.C., is Stefan Fatsis. He is the author of the books A Few Seconds of Panic, Wild and Outside, and Word Freak, which I mentioned last to ease the transition and noting that Stefan wrote a piece for Slate last week that you should check out about Scrabble adding slurs back in to the game's dictionary. Interesting move. Yeah, fascinating move. Uh, About half of the slurs that were removed three years ago during George Floyd and Black Lives Matter protests were restored for these incredibly technocratic, silly reasons. At the same time, the story is about how a lot of uh, some of the new words that were added through this exhaustive, painstaking, year-long process of adding words to the Scrabble word list eh, are pretty much not valid words. Joel, they added in the word horse feathers is. Not horse feathers, horse feathers is. Yeah, yeah. Also, debrises and feces is. <laughs> I mean, it seems appropriate for our time. You adding in some slurs and, you know, just kind of <laughs> a little, little strange grammatical things. I, I'm, I can't wait to read it, Stefan. The word numb nuts is, is out, though. You got to draw the line somewhere. You've already heard him. It's uh, America's favorite running back, Joel Anderson. It's not Blake Corm? Are we sure? <laughs> He's not, they're not, that's not the, the, the face of America's team. It's me, not Blake Corm. Huh? I was going to ask if you take the title America's favorite running back as an insult, given that running backs are not actually popular anymore. I mean, you know, I mean, if I'm in a room with other running backs, I mean, why not? I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, you also put me ahead of guys like Eddie George, you know, Marshall Falk. I don't think anybody liked Marshall Falk like that. Who's, oh, Jerome Bettis was sort of a lovable. Yeah, who dude, do you think so. is America's favorite running back, number two behind you? Do you think it's uh, Jerome Bettis? I, you know, Jerome Bettis is a really lovable guy. I, but, you know, Eddie George is like a hero of mine. I love that guy. I tried to impersonate him as a kid, like even the way he got up after he got tackled. So That's really Eddie cute. George is my favorite American running back. But I, th- I would probably have to say Jerome Bettis, though. I just remember when he went to the Super Bowl that time and everybody seemed to be rooting for him. I'd never seen anything like that for a running back other than maybe Walter Payton. So let's just say Jerome Bettis. It is said. Refrigerator Perry. Refrigerator Perry was pretty popular in his time. It's true. It's true. That's true. I mean, he was popular, but uh, I don't think anybody likes how that went down, getting that touchdown over Walter Payton, man. You know, shame on you, Mike Ditka. Shame on you, even still. Before we get to our first segment, I'm going to take a couple of seconds to thank our Slate Plus members for supporting us through Thick and Thicker. 
You see, thanks to you, there is no thin. And we hope you enjoy the bonus segments that we provide for you each week. And hey, listen up. We've got one for you this week in which we'll talk about what the hell happened with Deion Sanders is now four and seven Colorado Buffaloes after their fast start. Tiras, bat that around. You need to be a Slate Plus member. When you join, you'll get bonus segments on Hang Up and on other shows, ad-free listening for all Slate podcasts, and you get to support us. Slate.com slash Hang Up Plus to sign up. That's Slate.com slash Hang Up Plus. Last week, Fox Sports and Amazon Prime NFL pregame show host Carissa Thompson yucked it up with the bros on the Barstool Sports podcast, Pardon My Take. Around the hour and a half mark of the two-hour, 44-minute show, the gang talked about the job of the NFL sideline reporter, which Thompson did on Fox from 2008 to 2010. To their credit, they mostly discussed how difficult and thankless it is. And then Thompson said this. Like, what's, where's the upside? Like, yeah. you're only going to fail in that situation. Yeah, but- I just talked to Mike Tomlin. He says that we need to go out in the second half and compete. I and I've said this before, so I haven't been fired for saying it, but I'll say it again. Um, I would make up the report sometimes because a the coach wouldn't come out at halftime or it was too late. And I was like, I didn't want to screw up the report. So I was like, I'm just going to make this up because, Mm -hmm. first of all, no coach is going to get mad if I say, hey, we need to stop. Uh, hurting ourselves we needed to be better on third down we yep. need to stop turning the ball Pressure over the quarterback we need yeah exactly <laughs> and and do a better job of getting off the field like they're not going to correct me on that right. so i'm like it's fine i'll it, just make up the report thompson was immediately and universally criticized by other sports media members almost all of them women from icons like leslie visser andrea kramer and lisa salters to younger reporters working their way up among them was lindsey jones she's the senior editor nfl for the ringer has reported for The Athletic, USA Today, and the Denver Post, and is a past president of the Pro Football Writers of America. She is here now. Hey, Lindsay, welcome back to the show. Hi, and I appreciate you calling me a younger writer. That's uh, oh, not I, true, you know what? I nice did not mean that. I, I meant that you were one of the icons. <laughs> okay. You were among the icons. Lindsay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, either yeah. way, that's very flattering. So thank you, and uh, it's it's lovely to be back with you guys. I thought you summed up the damage from Thompson's comments perfectly. You wrote, a near-universal experience for women in sports media is the feeling of needing to work twice as hard to be taken seriously. So the way Carissa Thompson cavalierly admitted to making up quotes is unforgivable. This is about the perception of how journalists do their jobs, but more specifically, women journalists, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of troubling things in the way that she kind of addressed that, you know, where she talked about making up reports. Um, But the thing that really struck me is how she just didn't seem to think that there was a problem with it. It wasn't like, this job is really hard, and I struggled with the pressure of it. And so I did something and this is not what you should do. It was just passed off as this like, yeah, this is what I did, because I couldn't get the information. And I think it was just really the cavalier. I think that was the word I used in my tweet. It was it was really the cavalier nature of it. That was, um, was really, really frustrating. And I think, you know, talking to a lot of other um, women in this business over the last week, I will say the uh, the journalism group chats were buzzing uh, after this happened. I mean, that was really a thing that struck out because there are so many um, up and coming reporters and people who are working so hard. And for somebody to just be like, yeah, I just made it up and then end up in like the Amazon hosting job that she's in right now, that was the sports media job of the last season, of the last kind of off season. And she's paid very, very well to do that. She's by all measures is a very good host, but 
to have kind of worked her way up that way by making stuff up is is just really, really frustrating. So, Lindsay, you, you did mention that, you know, you've talked to a lot of other people, a lot of other women in the field over the last week in the wake of these comments. So, like, what are the things that they've been saying? And have you run into anybody that has actually defended uh, Carissa under these circumstances? No, I don't think I found anybody who's necessarily defended her, not in, like, my personal circle. I've definitely seen that discourse online where, you know, people have asked, well, what was she supposed to do if she didn't get the information? And I think... Uh, there's a pretty clear answer to that is anything but making up a report and quoting somebody, you know, making up quotes. Um, so I think that, you know, I think there have been kind of two parts of this. Um, one side is that there's definitely been this discourse about the value of sideline reporting and what do sideline reporters do? What is their job? What do they add? Are they necessary to, you know, a modern NFL broadcast? Those sorts of things. And then there's just like the basic tenets of journalism. And, you know, I've got I got a lot of people in my comments and stuff that said, like, who cares? Sideline reporters aren't important. And it's like, Whatever your job is, if you're a lawyer, you work at a bank, you're a teacher, if there's like the one thing that is most important to what you do for your job and you just blatantly violate it, that's, you know, that is the, that's like at the core of this, right? It's not necessarily like, oh, sideline reporting is so hard. It's that she just, you know, she was a journalist and she just made stuff up and just admitted to making stuff up. So I haven't found anybody who has been able to come up with some sort of justification for making up reports. Um, I think there is a lot of discussion about the future of sideline reporting, the value of it, how it can be additive to current broadcast. But I think that is a separate issue from what she admitted to doing. Yeah, I mean, I think my my theory on why there's been so much pushback from women who've had this position, women in sports media, is that over decades— this has been the one piece of turf that women in this field have been given. And, you know, as Pam Oliver has talked about for years, it's a position on the field that women, you know, Black women, women of color, women who aren't blonde have had to fight not just to get, but to protect. And there is this perception, and I think Carissa Thompson talked about it in that clip, that a lot of what sideline reporters do is repeat cliches that coaches say out of halftime. Um, and so it's this combination of we had to fight so hard to get this job that is incredibly hard and that people don't respect. And this is just like another hit that we're, we're taking here. And so it all combines together, this idea of what's the value of sideline reporting, the idea of you can't just make stuff up. And it just feels like another another attack when, you know, women in this entire field and in this particular spot just have it so hard already. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it's interesting to see hear her say, like, oh, it's just repeating cliches. Because I think the really good side of the reporters don't do that. And I think they're bringing tremendous value to the entire team. And they're part of, you know, the crew, right? I know Lisa Salters, I've been, I've done some like behind the scenes Monday Night Football reporting over the years, been in production meetings and stuff with that crew. And like, she is so active in dictating what is said on that entire broadcast, the reporting that she's doing throughout the week, um, what she's seeing, what she's hearing, what she's observing, what she is 
you only get a little bit of time to do that. But to be like, oh, we're just going to repeat these cliches about, you know, we need to establish the run or get more pressure on third down. That's not what the good sideline reporters do. What you're saying is that what Lisa Salters gets gets said by Joe Buck or Troy Brinkman and not credited to her. Well, yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, they come to her in a lot of moments, you know, in important moments. But I think they're involved in all of those production meetings in terms of like the gathering the information from the outset and asking the questions. And, you know, somebody like Andrea Kramer, who is one of the best sports reporters of kind of this era, like, no matter what job she's been in, whether it's been like long form sit down interviews or sideline reporting, like I think they're able to glean really important insights and to kind of just dismiss this as like, oh, we're just repeating the cliches that a coach says. I think that's just not a clear understanding of what a good sideline reporter should do. And like, it's a good reason that Carissa Thompson is not a sideline reporter. Like, I think it's pretty clear that she was not good at it. She's better suited for her hosting role. But there's a lot of women, younger women who really want to do that job because that's what they've always seen, right? If you were like a woman going to sports media, like those are the people you see. You see Aaron Andrews, you see Lisa Salters, Melissa Stark, you know, and you say, that's that's what I can see. So that's what I want to be. And there are really good examples of how to do it. And obviously now there's some examples of how not to do that job. We should say that Aaron Andrews on a podcast that she co-hosts with Carissa yeah. Thompson uh, in early 2022, basically said, yeah, I did that too. Um, meaning I made stuff up when a coach yeah. was uncommunicative. But Aaron Andrews' reputation in the business is that she actually does work really hard and is a competent reporter who is spending the week ga- gathering information. I don't think Aaron Andrews deserves a pass in this necessarily right. because of the way that like that that conversation was. It just happened to be that like that podcast didn't get listened to the way that the Barstool one did last week. So it didn't take off. Um, there was a sense of like protecting the coaches. And that was kind of, I think, how Aaron framed hmm. it in their their podcast from last year was like a coach had said something incorrect and she didn't want to make him look bad. And so she kind of shaped the report that way. I don't think there was any indication that she made up quotes and said like, Coach Tomlin said, we need to X, Y, and Z, or he told me X, Y, and Z when she didn't actually talk to him. But it is a weird instinct to be like, I have to protect the coach. That's not your job as a journalist, right? You're not their buddy to make them there, you know, to make them feel good or look smart or whatever. If they say something dumb, you know, or if they're a jerk. And I think that was, you know, that I think was where Carissa Thompson's stuff kind of started from, right? Is that she said that Coach Marinelli with the Lions, instead of giving her a good, you know, an answer to a question said, oh, wow, you smell really good. She just made up a report, which one, he should absolutely not be doing that. That is inappropriate for a head coach to be doing to in a professional working environment with a reporter from a television network. But she shouldn't have to protect him too, right? Like I would respect if you said, I asked Coach Marinelli about their terrible run defense and all he wanted to do was talk about my perfume. Like, I know she would never do that, but like, why are we protecting these coaches, right, that are being jerks or blowing off their halftime interviews? Like, Maybe the biggest problem here, Joel, is that that what she did and the way she said it diminishes the value of a job that, as you pointed out earlier, Josh, has been the one of the few pieces of of turf that has been granted to women. I don't know that we've had this conversation about my friend Ken Rosenthal and the other baseball sideline reporters who are largely men. Nobody's saying Tom Verducci is useless and we don't need to hear from them (laughs) when they're interviewing Bruce Bochy in the middle of a World Series game. Um, So why has that been the overriding narrative? Well, the the reason is that 
sports fans are sexist, many of them. And these women are easy targets, just as all women in sports journalism are easy targets. And maybe that's the other question, Lindsay, that I think is helpful to, to, to understand or to ask, which is that this isn't easy on any level covering football as a woman. Um, and give us some perspective, you know, about how you about the relationship between what's happened in the last few days and the sort of daily interactions that you and other beat reporters and writers who cover the NFL have to deal with over the years. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, it's kind of goes back to what my initial reaction was and what I tweeted kind of in the moment when this was all blowing up um, last week was that it is just this feeling that I think just about every woman in this industry feels that you can't afford to make a mistake that you're held to a different standard in terms of your your football knowledge you know you, you the, the online comments are a lot worse you know when my male colleagues make a mistake it's you know oh you're an idiot it's not and, and when a woman makes a mistake you get very vile sexist comments and you know dismissed really in a, on a whole different level um and it is exponentially worse for women of color i know women of color who are trying to break into those broadcasting roles those um sideline reporting roles are definitely held to a different standard and it, the, the path there is a lot more difficult um so i think that's really you know been the challenge here is that it just kind of reflected all of those things that are always kind of bubbling under the surface. All of the things that we we think about, we talk about, we feel that are in the private group text, all of those sorts of things, um, just kind of blown up onto this larger scale. It's the journalism ethics issues. It's the sexism issues. It's the privilege issues. It's the white privilege um, conversation. There, all of that stuff has kind of been wrapped up in this one story. And I, I get that there's probably a lot of viewers who don't care, right? They don't care about the sideline reports or what the role of a sideline reporter is. But for those of us who this is our livelihood, we care a lot about it. And I would love to see a little bit more accountability from both from Carissa Thompson, because she is still in a very powerful chair. She was on Thursday Night Football set, and it just wasn't addressed. Amazon is still putting her out. She's still working for Fox. I would love to see more from those outlets about this situation. You know, I think that would go a long way for the the younger women, especially who are trying to make their way in this business and trying to make sense of everything that just happened. Yeah. You know, and I, I guess like, obviously, you know, the gender dynamics can't be dismissed here, right? Because of the sexism, because of the way the industry works. This is one of the few places that women can get a foothold in the sports media. And I obviously don't want to dismiss anyone's lived experiences or anxiety about their place in the industry. But I also think about this sometimes, you know, from the perspective of race, because that's the only, you know, that's the, I guess, maybe the only sort of parallel experience, uh, at least that, that I experienced. And so when people say things about black reporters or black journalists or whatever, and people say, oh, well, this is really going to affect the way that you know, it, the next black person that comes into this newsroom or, or gets on air, it's going to affect the way people look at them. And I'm always like, I don't know about that, because given what we know about the way the world works, the way that sexism and misogyny are intractable, unavoidable issues in sports, like, is it really possible that Carissa's comments could have that much of effect on the way people that, that female sideline reporters are perceived by sports fans? Because I'm my thought has always been like, you can think whatever about this black reporter, right? And if you, whatever you think about black reporters, if you don't think we belong, whatever, I don't think anybody that's good or bad to the cause is necessarily going to change people's opinions on that, right? But maybe that's, 
a little too dismissive about the damage that Carissa may have done with her comments. But that's kind of what I thought. But I, do you think that at all, Lindsay, that that actually is going to change the way people think of female sideline reporters? No, not necessarily. I do think that there's it's just kind of sparked this like bigger conversation about the value of sideline reporters and what do they do and how do they do their jobs. And so maybe there's been a little bit more of a close examination of what actually goes on and the value of those reports. I think where it's damaging is for people who are trying to do this job and learning how to do this job and thinking that maybe this is okay. And um, that this is just something that happens. And if you do this, you can you know, and if everything else goes right and you have a lot of other things working in your favor, that someday you can land, you know, a seven figure job or whatever it is she's making hosting one of the the prime shows for the NFL's broadcast partners. So I think that's where this is, you know, it's kind of damaging. It's definitely damaging for her own reputation. I mean, if you saw the the tweets and stuff that were going on on Thursday night, but I hope that the swift and overarching backlash from you know, sideline reporters and a lot of other journalists are kind of just showing that this is not, the norm. This is not normal. You should see value in sideline reporting and you should trust the people that you see on your television on Sundays and Monday nights to bring you good and valuable information. And what it reminded me of is this folksy story that Ronald Reagan used to tell about how when he was a minor league baseball announcer in the 1930s, one time he was calling a game, the ticker tape broke, which is how they used to get the news of what was happening. The way he told the story was, I just said the guy just kept hitting foul balls for 12 minutes. Foul balls and foul ball and foul ball until the ticker tape came back. Now, knowing Ronald Reagan, he probably made up the part about making up that. I don't, I don't know how, how true that was. <laughs> but what it makes me think is, why not just be honest and say the tape broke and we'll yeah. be back with you as soon as it got fixed? And in this case, you know, maybe... You're not you don't want to say you don't want to make yourself the center of attention and say the coach said this incredibly sexist thing, but just say the coach wouldn't talk to me or just say something that happened early in the week. You do have you do have options there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that and that I think was a lot of the reaction that we saw was like this happens all the time, right? That the coach is late, the coach doesn't come out, the coach doesn't say anything useful. And so you use the information that you've gleaned from being in all of those production meetings, from having watched practice, from being around football and understanding, like, you know, it's pretty clear that this team is having a really hard time generating a pass rush. And, you know, that's something that they're going to need to going to need to work on in the second half. Like, you don't have to say, Coach X told me X, Y, and Z. The one other thing that I kept thinking of is this was became this referendum, right, on Southern reporting was how weird Thursday Night Football was, where she was sitting on the desk, pregame, halftime show. And then Kaylee Hartung, who is the sideline reporter for that game, was doing a really incredible job of providing live updates to the injury that was going on with Joe Burrow. Like, really interesting insights of what was going on at the bench. She had the injury updates before anybody in the booth or anybody in the press box knew it. And so it was just this really odd juxtaposition of, like, people online saying, like, who cares about sideline reporting? Carissa was fine. They didn't do anything. And then an actual like, tangible example of somebody doing that job really well and being very additive to the broadcast that just struck me as very, very odd. We're talking on podcasts right now. And when you talk on a podcast for a very long time, lots of things come out yeah. that maybe you're not necessarily want to be held accountable for later. So how much of this do you all think was just Carissa filling the air and just the sort of bluster that comes when you're just running out of things to say and not actually the admission of being a fabulist, right? I, I thought about that 
in over the over the course of the weekend since this came up um her walk back statement said i chose the wrong words to describe the situation in the absence of a coach providing any information that i could that could further my report i would use information that i learned and saw during the first half to create my report i never attributed anything i said to a player or coach so i guess until we go back or someone goes back and looks at her sideline reports from 2008 to 2010 to see what exactly she said. We can't really be sure, but it's not what she said in the moment. Her her walk back was the opposite of what she said in the moment. What she said in the moment appeared to indicate that if a coach wouldn't talk to me, I would say coach said that we got to come out stronger on defense in the second half. Um, so there is some... You know, she said, she said here, but I don't know that we'll ever get to the bottom of it unless someone really wants to Zapruder these tapes. And that definitely can happen, especially like the longer form, you know, interview style. And that I think was like an in-person one where they were all kind of sitting on a couch. And yeah, you maybe forget that you're, you know, kind of being on a podcast that's listened by millions of people. The thing that where I don't necessarily buy that she kind of just got carried away is that she she once said, I've said this before and didn't get fired from it. So she knew that this was not something that like you're probably supposed to do, but she kind of wanted to like brag about it to make it seem like I'm a cool girl or Mm -hmm. I I don't know exactly what it was, but she had said the same thing before. So it wasn't just like speaking off the cuff. Like this is a story that's in her head that she probably talks about with her friends a lot about like, oh, remember that time that, you know, he did this or whatever. So that's where the, the walk back just didn't didn't feel real to me because like you said it and you'd said it before. So either you're lying in the statement or you're relying on the multiple podcasts where you told those, those same stories. And the lead up to, to the, the money quote in that podcast, Lindsay, uh, the conversation was about how hard the actual sideline reporters do work. And Carissa Thompson says it was really too much work for her. The job is great, but I just couldn't do it. I didn't like it. Yeah. And I'm, it's probably good that she's not doing it anymore. Lindsay Jones is the senior editor slash NFL for The Ringer. She's also a past president of the Pro Football Writers of America. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Up next, a conversation about Miami Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel. In Kent Babb's fascinating profile of Miami Dolphins head coach Mike McDaniel and the Washington Post last week, were taken on his climb up the NFL coaching ranks, from his days interning with the hometown Denver Broncos and Mike Shanahan, to his time dialing up offense for Mike's son, Kyle Shanahan, with the San Francisco 49ers. But along the way, we learn of McDaniel's fascination with father and son relationships because of his upbringing in Colorado as the only child of a single mother. It's not quite a linear story of triumph, however, as McDaniel learns how to manage his own drinking problems and his wife's infertility struggles en route to becoming a father and then the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. There's a lot to take away from this story, Josh, but in particular, McDaniel talks about learning how to better relate to his own players by observing the practices of the kind of men he admired as fathers. That's not the Bob Knights. That's not even Joe Gibbs, who we learn got recordings of dinnertime conversations between his wife and two sons so he could catch up on their lives. No, 
McDaniel took his cues from family men and champions like Mike Shanahan and Gary Kubiak, coaches he admired first as a fan and later worked for as a Broncos intern. But my question is, Josh, do you think this story is still published? Do you think it still resonates if McDaniel and the Dolphins were three and seven today as opposed to seven and three after Sunday's win over the Las Vegas Raiders? Well, in fairness, it was published when they were still six and three. So, you know, it could have could have been they could have been six and four and it would have still been published. But I I think that's a great point. And I think the takeaway from the story for me isn't that if you are humane, if you treat your players well, as Mike McDaniel does, it in no way guarantees that you're successful. But nor does treating your players like shit guarantee that you're successful either. I would even argue that, you know, we've seen whether it's Bill Belichick or Vince Lombardi or Bear Bryant, like from recent times or times in the past, that actually being a nice person, maybe it could be a net negative or at least it could, it's neutral. But I don't think you need to be an asshole to win. I think that's what the takeaway is here, that being nice doesn't guarantee you anything. But what McDaniel shows is that it can make you happier, it can make for a better work environment, can make your players happier and trust you more. And I think on balance, that just seems like a better way to live. Um, and there's a lot of kind of talk in this piece about um, the just absolutely abhorrent lifestyle that coaches have been acculturated to live in terms of not sleeping, in terms of just this kind of drill sergeant, taskmaster way of, of being that McDaniel, at a young age, seems to have recognized as just all kind of cult cultural learning that doesn't have anything to do with success. And so all credit to him. Um, one thing that I didn't think came across in the piece that is, I think, even among coaches who are more humane is that McDaniel is just kind of a weird guy and a funny guy. Like, I've never heard anyone like him in press conferences. The kind of dry sense of humor that he has and just, he's just, he's just kind of strange. <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to play this clip and this is after a Dolphins-Bears game and Justin Fields is just scrambling around and uh, cameras caught him talking to Fields after uh, he scrambled one time and ran out of bounds. And this is what McDaniel had to say about that. I just wanted him to stop scrambling. And it was pretty irritating because he didn't listen at all. Stefan, have you ever heard a coach say something like that? And I, <laughs> I'm sure that was an accurate account of what he said to Justin Fields on the sidelines. <laughs> no, I have never heard a coach say something like that. Um, but you bring up the point that Mike McDaniel was different, and he is different. I mean, he he did play football. He played at Yale. He was a walk-on wide receiver at Yale. Um, he was not a football factory guy. Um, this is not someone that you look at and think, oh, that's the classic resume of a future head coach. He did come up through the ranks, but he came up with this 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 Ivy League pedigree that is more and more favored, obviously, in front offices, but we don't typically see it as much on the field, though there are examples. Think of Jason Garrett, who went to Princeton, um, though was a quarterback and not a walk-on wide receiver and did play in the NFL. I mean, McDaniel is a different profile, though 
he has been exposed to the game for a long time. He was a ball boy for the Broncos as a kid. He was an intern for the Broncos. Actually, the season before I was in Denver that summer to write A Few Seconds of Panic. He's just a different personality than what we typically expect. And I think that manifests in his introspection and his worldview and his understanding that he has gained like over time. I mean, after going through, you know, being fired because of his drinking at one point by one of his mentors, Kubiak, um, that he sort of come to this realization that you shouldn't be an asshole and you can still succeed. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting to have read this piece and to be talking about it two weeks after we sort of eulogized Bob Knight. And I used Bob Knight earlier in the intro. Um, or I even think about the two Bills 30 for 30 about Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. And one thing that I thought about is, especially as you get to the end of it, for people that have seen it, um, the two men are reunited after years of sort of an icy relationship. And it just seems so painful and sad that these two men who had shared so much, had so much success together, spent so much time around each other, and they couldn't even generate any warmth to each other, you know, which is, you know, basically in the last quarter of their lives. Like Bob Knight and Coach K. Yeah, like Bob Knight and Coach K. And so, yeah, I mean, I was, it was sort of um, affirming to read about a coach who's a product of a new generation, a guy that's... uh sort of taken on a new approach to power dynamics and building relationships. And and, and it's funny because you did talk about, um, or even they talk about it in the story about his relationship with Tua. Um, and I thought often about even going to my own career, the power of a coach who believes in you and treats you like you're worthy. Um, and I don't know why more ex-players and even current players don't talk about this. Like when you find the coach who not only believes in you, but takes an interest in you. I played for all sorts of coaches in my life, you know, from youth football through college. And I still gravitate towards the ones that I thought actually cared about me. When I go home to Houston, I visit them. I've got plans when I go home for Christmas. I'm going to show my son to one of my, the coaches that I loved and had relationships with. And I don't understand why coaches wouldn't, wouldn't, want to have that in their life, right? Like, it just seems like the sort of thing that a lot of these guys are cutting off, whereas Mike McDaniel is opening it up and saying, you know what, there's another way to do this. And to your point, you could be an asshole, even if you say you want to model after Bill Belichick or whoever, or Bill Parcells, but none of that guarantees you winning, right? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that just because you, you know, ape the characteristics of those winners that you're going to be able to do it. And so I don't understand why you wouldn't, take the other tact, which is to infuse your players with confidence and appreciation. And so I think that players are more likely to want to play for you um, under those sort of circumstances. Isn't it, Josh, a little bit that that Mike McDaniel is just kind of an intellectual? He has thought about these issues of management and style and relationship. He's got sort of a high emotional intelligence, it seems. Yeah, I mean, you wrote a piece that we were revisiting in preparation for the segment for Sports Illustrated mm -hmm. back in 2009, and the kind of young genius coaches then were a guy with an extra S at the end of his name, uh, Josh McDaniels, Eric Mangini. And these are coaches who really flamed out in the NFL. But um, even kind of earlier in their careers, when you're writing this piece, you noted like these guys are, you know, drill surgeons, taskmasters, force players to, you know, answer pop quizzes in front of the whole McDaniels was forcing his rookies to come in at 5.30 a.m. to practice comedy skits. I mean, just like real 
kind of insecure behavior by a young coach. And also, like, reading that, Stefan, because I'm like, oh, this was a decade ago. And then you just fast forward to McDaniels getting basically walked out of that facility for the same reason a decade Mm -hmm. later. It's like he learned nothing in the intervening Mm -hmm. years. And I'm like, why didn't you know that that was something that you had to improve on, right? Josh McDaniels getting fired by the Raiders, you mean, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I'm just like, why didn't you learn that? Part of a coach is learning the things that don't work. And like working on them, right? Like, all right, I'm going to improve that. This is something. But that's, it's something that clearly he did not commit to memory or didn't even think it was worthwhile because you can see how happy the Raiders are now that he's gone, right? And, you know, a point that you made in that piece that was really smart is that these coaches coming up really um, get drilled on football stuff. Um, But Mm -hmm. there's not the same kind of attention and training done around, you know, leadership and management. And I think we can relate to that no matter what field we're in, that people often who are good as individual contributors get elevated into management and can't do that job or incapable of doing that job, aren't trained for that job. And McDaniel, perhaps because from the time he was a kid, he thought of himself as being wanting to be a coach. It seems like something he's thought about pretty deeply, and he was exposed to a lot of different guys who are NFL head coaches, not because of nepotism, um, kind of unusually, but because he just managed to attach himself to the Broncos and then Houston and Washington and all these, managed to get jobs in all these places, saw people that he wanted to emulate and didn't want to emulate. And, you know, a a thing that I found really interesting about Kent Babb's piece is there's kind of subtle, maybe it wasn't even that subtle, differentiation between him and Brian Flores, the guy that he succeeded. And with Brian Flores, because he um, got fired, because he was one of the few um, Black coaches in the NFL, because he filed this lawsuit, I think there's this tendency among those who think the NFL has done a horrible job with diversity to praise him and say, Brian Flores is amazing. Like, how could they have done this? I think this piece points out that Brian Flores was maybe not a great coach. coach in the locker room, that he made Tua feel like shit, that he kept pulling Tua in and out of the lineup, didn't really support him in the way that Mike McDaniel has. Yeah. So, Joel, I'm curious what you thought about that. Well, Josh, well, actually, so that was something that I I could absolutely see where Mike McDaniel is a different personality and that maybe that change that was refreshing to that that locker room. But I also was just kind of curious. I was like, huh. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying not to be cynical about like why they did this counterpoint with Brian Flores because Brian Flores wasn't a failure no. as a coach. Like he had a pretty decent record there. I'm not being cynical, but I was just like, huh. I just wonder if there was some sort of way. I don't think that you had to undercut Brian Flores to elevate Mike McDaniel there, right? And there are a lot of people within the league that I'm sure that are desirous of making sure that Brian Flores doesn't come off as a hero anymore. And I'm not saying that Kent Babb did anything to, you know, to impugn his integrity or anything, but I just, I don't know. I was a little, I was a little worried about that. If there were more black coaches, then it wouldn't be a big deal if you criticized one of them for the same reason that we're criticizing Josh McDaniels or anybody else. Absolutely. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that Brian Flores was a was a great guy or easy to be around. I'm certain that if you come up in the Bill, Belichick pipeline, that you learn some ways that probably don't work as well if you're not Bill Belichick. But it just, it, it did catch my attention. So, Stefan, Mike McDaniels' relationship with Tua Tungavailoa is a big part of this piece. Um, I wanted to play this clip of a kind of mic'd up moment where the two of them are on the sideline joking around together. 
I woke up like at three and I couldn't go back to sleep. So I, I was thinking about when you randomly hit me up that you're YouTubing me. Yeah. And so then I YouTubed you and heard and saw this Trent Dilfer thing <laughs> showing all this high school from you. Right. And bro, your your technique was trash. <laughs> you know what I mean? Thank yeah. God for Bev. What are you talking about? No, no rhythm, no timing? <laughs> Is that what you talking about? It was cool though, because you could see little elements of like your swag. Um, but you were, yeah, you were stressed out. Woo! I like that, man. I love that. And I think this goes to Bab's larger point about how Mike McDaniel has established positive relationships with players during his coaching rise. Um, you think of Tua. And you think that, okay, Brian Flores treated him badly. He played in college for Nick Saban, not known as the fuzziest, warmest, most emotionally intelligent coach. And his father was abusive by their own admission, talking about how if Tua had a bad game in high school, he would be facing the belt when he came home. Mike McDaniel, in his pre one of his previous jobs in, in Washington, under Mike Shanahan and Kyle Shanahan, developed this really unusual relationship with, or at least is described as unusual, relationship with RG3, who was the quarterback then. And McDaniel seems unafraid to be human, to be a friend. And that was that that's one of the sort of those other underlying tenets of bully coaching. You can never get to like the players because at some point you're going to have to cut them. So you have to create this emotional distance. McDaniel seems to be calling bullshit on that and developing these positive relationships that in Tonga Vailoa's case seem to really have improved his ability to lead and be a successful quarterback. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about this because Tua was obviously a great athlete all the way through college. Like, I, w I was at the, the national championship game when he came off the bench in the second half as a freshman and uh, led Alabama to, you know, a win over Georgia uh, on that last that walk-off touchdown in overtime. And I was thinking that, you know, when you're a great athlete, you don't necessarily need the psychological side of the game. Like, it helps if you have confidence in yourself. But if you're just a dominant athlete in high school and college, you can mm -hmm. sort of muddle your way through. But when you reach real difficulty in your sport, then that's when the psychological side becomes important. And I've just always thought a lot of people who are motivated by fear and thrive under that. I've always just wondered if it wasn't better if to build up your players as you develop them as athletes. And I just think about my even my own career. Like, I just at a certain point, I didn't have belief in myself, right? And yeah, yeah, that makes me emotional to even think about now. And I just wish that I wish that everybody had the opportunity to play for Mike McDaniel. If the, if what Kent Babb reports about him is true, I wish everybody had an opportunity to play for that because I think that you can be so much yourself, and then we can figure out, all right, do I belong at this level, and I'm going to am I going to thrive or whatever? But um, you know, undercutting a person's confidence, or whatever, it's just really unfortunate. So you know, again, you just hope that. A lot more players get more Mike McDaniels and less Bill Belichick's in the course of their career. Last thing for me is that I wonder if it's actually the two reasons that Mike McDaniel is successful, actually, if there's a reason why they're not commonly found together. Like, the reason that he got this job was because he's a really great offensive thinker. And the Dolphins are doing amazing stuff with motion and speed and scoring a crap ton of points. And he's figured that out with just a kind of obsessive 
film study. Um, and so I wonder if people that have that trait generally um, are not devoting all of the time that Mike McDaniel has to thinking about the kind of people skills and, and management. And so maybe that's why he's an even more of a rare combination. But I would also say, you know, Sean McVay is younger than Mike McDaniel. He's still in his 30s, has won a Super Bowl. And there was a kind of fascination with Sean McVay around when he made the Super Bowl the first time around, when he won the Super Bowl the second time, that's now just kind of faded away because the Rams, post their Super Bowl win over the Bengals, have just kind of descended into mediocrity. Doesn't mean that Sean McVay is not a good coach anymore. It just means that, you know, in a couple years, maybe next year, people aren't going to be as interested in Mike McDaniel anymore. And then we'll see, will he settle in to being a guy who has the career longevity? Will the Dolphins struggle and then he'll get fired? I don't I don't know. I think we're still at the beginning of his story. And I think the other thing to see how it ages is how will his personality play when times are tough? One situation that was really tough for him was right after he got hired and his father's black, his father wasn't in his life, so Mike McDaniel's biracial, and he was asked about it and he said, I don't, I identify as a human being. And people are like, that's a really, really weird thing thing to say. And so he had to kind of walk it back and um, it was just a, a news cycle that kind of took, uh, it, it didn't take that long. But like Tyree Kill is on this team. In 2014, yeah. Tyree Kill pleaded guilty to strangling his pregnant girlfriend. Like people seem to have forgotten that, but what happens when that becomes a uh, big storyline, is Mike McDaniel's sense of humor, like, will he have the kind of gravitas to deal with, like, a really serious issue that happens in the franchise? How will how will he deal with the team just being bad? Well, Josh, he was criticized during the, the, the tour concussion stuff, too, right? Like, there was a lot of concern about the role he played in that. I, I think he didn't actually come out ultimately that badly in that. So maybe that's the answer to this question. But I, I do think um, I'm interested to see... You know, what happens not in just the next few weeks, but in um, coming years, whether he changes, whether um, the perception of him changes. Joel's going to step away for a bit, but he'll be back for After Balls. And up next, we've got Joshua Robinson of The Wall Street Journal on Formula One in Vegas. Hey, listeners, the holiday season is upon us, and the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. Browse our selection of hand-poured candles, classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. Anytime before November 27th, that's anytime before Cyber Monday, we're offering 30% off all items in the store. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com slash shop. That's slate.com slash shop. Happy shopping. All the greats are in Vegas right now. Barry Manilow, Penn & Teller, Cirque du Soleil, David Copperfield, Wayne Newton. 
Wayne Newton, he's 81. But over the weekend, the biggest act in Sin City was Formula One, which held a race there for the first time in more than 40 years. The lead up was a disaster. Residents were pissed over months of construction. Practice runs were called off after eight minutes because a loose drain cover damaged a Ferrari. The drivers who schlepped from Europe were annoyed. World champion Max Verstappen of the Netherlands called the whole thing 99% show and 1% sport event. And then they got in their cars and drove around the city and through the desert at speeds of more than 200 miles per hour in one of the most exciting races of the F1 season. Verstappen won and changed his tune. It was a lot of fun out there, he said. I hope everyone enjoyed it. We definitely did. We're already excited to come back next year. Joshua Robinson was in Vegas for the race. He covers European sports for the Wall Street Journal and is the co-author with his colleague Jonathan Clegg of a new book, The Formula, How Rogues, Geniuses, and Speed Freaks Re-Engineered F1 into the World's Fastest Growing Sport. It's out next March, but if you like what he says in this podcast, you should pre-order now. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. So what did the marriage of Formula One and Las Vegas look and feel like on the ground? Well, it was one of these situations where Formula One was in so deep on this project, they spent $600 million to make it happen, that they really couldn't afford to screw it up. And they so nearly did, as you explained. But once the race started and once the show started in earnest, it kind of worked. It kind of worked because you have to remember that, you know, local concerns aside, what this is really about is a television show. And it has to look great on TV. And they brought back one of their legendary producers to make sure that it all looked great so that it didn't look like um, that they were, you know, racing in a cage as they go through the, uh, the barriers on the left and right sides of the strip because that's how it could look. But in the end, they got the helicopter shots they wanted, they got the backdrop they wanted, and it was really the Sin City postcard that they'd been dreaming of. I was a little bit confused by the negativity from the drivers, including Verstappen and the run-up about, you know, how the intros were over the top and they like had them out on this platform looking like clowns, I think Verstappen said. I mean, this is, a sp I've, I've been once to the Grand Prix of, of Monaco and to argue that this race is like over the top or is like more of a focus on glitz than actual substance just seemed kind of bizarre to me given the entire just... <laughs> backdrop of all of all of these races and this kind of worldwide carnival why was it that vegas was somehow classified as being different is it like a nouveau riche sort of thing or or am i missing something there's there's definitely part of the nouveau riche thing there's also kind of an inherent suspicion of all things american from a lot of europeans um and i say this you know having seen a guy like max verstappen who you know, is so deeply rooted in traditional F1. I mean, in his, I think his ideal world, every race would be like the Belgian Grand Prix, which is camper vans and tailgates and sitting out in a muddy field, um, you know, in the rain in Belgian August, you know, to watch cars at the, at the peak of performance. So more Tour de France than a car race. Much in more. In terms of that's, vibe. That's more Tour de exactly. France than Vegas. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that's what someone like Verstappen would prefer. The tradition, the the very European side of it. He gets kind of confused by anything that's like Singapore or Vegas or Miami. He did sing Viva Las Vegas into the car radio after the race was over. So I guess winning uh, can change your mind. It certainly did for him. And, you know, that's what he does everywhere. So why should Vegas be any different? <laughs> 
F1 was purchased by the American media giant Liberty Media um, like six years ago. They have invested hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, spent what, what bought it for something like $8 billion. Uh, They have recruited Wall Street money to buy these race teams. Um, they're sort of reimagining F1 as a kind of American-style league with franchises. Is this working? And how much is the American market part of F1's growth plan? The American market had been the elusive one for Formula One for decades. Um, it was the one they couldn't figure out. Back in the Bernie Eccleston era, they came to, I think, seven or eight different venues all across America. They tried it in Detroit. They tried it in Phoenix. Um, they even tried Vegas in the early 80s when they raced in the parking lot of Caesars Palace. And then they settled in Indianapolis. But even that came with an enormous fiasco. There was a tire situation that led to one race being finished by only six cars. And so... What happens from there is that, you know, after F1 left and didn't come back until Austin in 2012, they didn't feel like they needed it that much. At least that was the Bernie philosophy. Then when new owners came in, first CVC, an investment fund in, based in London, and then, um, and then Liberty, they knew that this market was there for them. They had to recapture it and they didn't really know how. Drive to Survive, the Netflix series, gave them that surprise and suddenly found they're popular in America again, okay, we must capitalize immediately. And so that was ramping up Austin. That was Miami, which turned out to be kind of a dress rehearsal for Las Vegas because it gave them the glitz and it gave them a way to test the American market. The ratings have skyrocketed in America. They're plateauing a little bit this season, probably because of the Max Verstappen dominance. You know, he's won uh, 18 races out of the 21 this year. And they, it leaves them in a position where they're not necessarily growing as fast as they'd like to, but they've consolidated their gains. So the disaster that Stefan mentioned in his intro was this, um, you know, flying manhole cover in practice um, caused them to cancel practice, which you'd think like, oh, cancel a practice day, whatever, not a big deal. People paid hundreds, thousands of dollars to attend this. And it was, you know, even practice was this enormous show with all of this kind of buildup. They end up coming back at something like 2.30 in the morning without fans to finish it up after kind of, uh, you know, going around and fixing things up on the course. And afterwards, there was a kind of dismissiveness from the bosses of F1. Like, these things happen. We'll give you a $200 merchandise voucher if you had a ticket. And it sort of played into this idea that um, the quote-unquote ordinary fan as an afterthought, that at this race, the get-in price is ridiculous, um, even when there's something that's clearly, you know, the race's fault. It's like, whatever, like, act of God, you deal with it. We're not particularly sorry. Is that a kind of indication of a potential weak point for the entire circuit, like forgetting um, the the kind of ordinary fan? Or is this just sort of par for the course? People will be upset about it for a day and then they'll just keep buying the stuff and coming back and it'll be forgotten. I, I think that's the bet that F1 is making. And, you know, F1 is very, um, you know, for a global series is very oriented to market specificities um, in, in each country it goes to. And I think for Vegas, they were prepared to accept, if not admit, that, 
the the sort of run of the mill fan or the the general fan was not as important to them here. It was much more important for them to produce this ideal postcard with a listers and the the incredible backdrop of Las Vegas and the lights and everything else than it was to care about the people who were on the ground. I mean, look at the start times as you point out for some of the sessions. 2.30 a.m. wasn't the original schedule, but they went ahead with it anyway. But they had qualifying scheduled at midnight on Friday night, and then the race started at Saturday at, uh, at 10 p.m. So that tells you a lot. Some of that had to do with local restrictions, but it tells you a lot about who their real audience is. And they knew that you know, it's not for the million or two million viewers in America um, that they're going to change things radically. They still need to preserve that more Sunday morning audience in Europe and Sunday afternoon audience in Asia, because um, that remains the hardcore. And in terms of going market by market, you know, they are perfectly happy to say, okay, Las Vegas is going to be one for the extremely wealthy fans. The sort of more traditional fans can come to Monza or Belgium or anywhere or any of those. They don't even charge the circuits the same fee to be a part of F1. Monza might pay somewhere between 10 and $15 million a year, but they're perfectly happy to charge Abu Dhabi upwards of $40 million. This race in Vegas also raised the larger question of who's hosting these global sports events. In one story I read, it sort of framed it as Vegas versus Saudi Arabia. Um, and where can these global sports organizations like FIFA, like Formula One, uh, like golf and tennis? Where can they extract the most dollars? Where does Formula One fit in that race to sort of capitalize as much as possible on the wealthiest um, bankrollers around the world? Um, Formula One's not only doing extremely well in that race, Formula One was actually first Years before FIFA and the IOC started going to various autocracies and taking golf money, Bernie Eccleston, once again, who gave absolutely no thought to local conditions or, or questions of human rights, was perfectly happy to go and venture into new territories. As, er, as early as the 1980s, he was trying to take a race into the Soviet Union. Um, and I mean, failed in that uh, in that regard. Later, made a deal with Putin and had the Sochi Grand Prix. But he went behind the Iron Curtain and installed a race in in Hungary, where he once told me he was dealing directly with the KGB. That's Bernie. But uh, they were in the Gulf very early as well. They went first to Bahrain in 2006, um, and then expanded quickly to Abu Dhabi. They've had races in Saudi, in Qatar. And something about Formula One is that, you know, they have everything they need to cater to the, the kind of super wealthy elites that run these, these emirates and, um, and want to have the glitz and the glamour of, of Formula One, even if they'll spray non-alcoholic champagne from the top step of the podium, while also, you know, having these, these governments bend over backwards to give them the circuits they want, to give them exactly the conditions they want. Because as the IOC and FIFA later found out, it's, a, it's pretty easy to do business in these autocracies if all you need is a bunch of venues and total control over, um, over policing and over the situation. One quick question and then a bigger picture one. I loved this line in your piece on the growth of the sport in the U.S. Um, that there's not a credible American driver and this rookie Logan Sargent has succeeded only in leading the sport in Rex this season. Um, there's a lot of amazing American race car drivers. If there is a concerted effort to get a credible American driver, it strikes me that that's not an impossible task. How kind of 
strong is that push? And do you think it will happen in the next, you know, three to five years? I think absolutely. Uh, I think it's so important. You know, there's so much value now we know in not just being a credible driver, but also being a kind of drive to survive personality. And we saw this with the incredibly popular Daniel Ricardo, the Australian driver who was an early star of drive to survive, but never quite the driver he was supposed to be. And even when he was briefly out of the sport earlier this season, Red Bull brought him back as a reserve drivers, just so that they could have him around, so that they could continue producing social media content with him, so that they could have his fans kind of satisfied in, in one way or another. Um, and so I think they're hoping for a similar character um, out of America who can not just perform and you know avoid crashes to the extent that it's possible, um, but also be that magnetic personality and be good at being on camera and be good on Drive to Survive because that show is coming back for at least two more seasons. And then a lot of what we talked about seems to me like chapter one in a story that ends with a collapse, like the rise before the fall, the kind of gigantism, the kind of the amount of money that's coming into the sport um, you mentioned the ratings plateauing. Maybe the ratings are going to crater. I don't know. But if I were to tell you that in 10 years, the business has collapsed, the sport is in bad straits somehow, what would you think are the reasons? If that were to happen, why do you think that Formula One is going to fall, decline, collapse? Well, they're, they're at a very delicate moment right now. Um, you know, like anything that benefits from a bubble, um, there's a question of how fast you expand. And the, that's the biggest one they're facing right now. Next season, they'll have 24 Grand Prix. And the teams and the drivers have already said, that has to be the ceiling. We cannot go any further. This is like the NFL, 17 games, 18 games, 20 games. Exactly, exactly. It's the question that all sports are posing themselves right now. Um, you know, even the NBA with its in-season tournament, how much is too much? Soccer is in a crisis of this, you know, expanded Club World Cup. Um, you know, ex the expanded World Cup as well with 48 teams, which we'll have in the U.S. in 2026. Um, all of these questions of at what point do you test the audience's attention just that little bit too far? You know, when does the attention drop off? Because it is the sports watching public is actually not a machine for printing money. And so that's the question that, that F1 has to deal with. 24 races is really a lot. Um, and Max Verstappen has said, including to me recently, if it goes anything beyond that, I'll think about doing something else. So I think that would be one of the reasons of its demise if it comes in in the next decade. Um, another is also getting cost under control for the teams. And they've done a good job of that already, you know, in, by installing like a, what they call the cost cap, limiting how much teams can spend on development. You know, gone are the days of blowing $400 million a year to develop the next car. But you know, it has to remain sustainable for the teams to stay in. And the, the third major issue is, you know, the environmental question. Formula One has committed to being net zero by 2030, which is a tall order. They're going to change the engine formula by 2026, bringing in more hybrid elements, which is good. But they can never fully leave behind the combustion engine, and they certainly can't leave behind the travel. Um, that's where most of the emissions come from. They're going to bounce now from Las Vegas to Abu Dhabi. And they're moving basically battleships worth of equipment over there. Um, and that's going to be a big reckoning for them in the next few years. 
Joshua Robinson covers European sports for the Wall Street Journal. His new book with Jonathan Clegg is The Formula, How Rogues, Geniuses, and Speed Freaks Re-Engineered F1 into the World's Fastest Growing Sport. It'll be out next March. You can pre-order. Joshua, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. And now it is time for After Balls, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. In Columbia, Missouri on Saturday, senior kicker Harrison Mevis drilled a 30-yard field goal as time expired to give the Tigers a 33-30 win over Florida and followed it up by prancing off the field, doing a gator chomp. Nice troll. Mevis is a senior with one more year of eligibility and has had a pretty good career so far. He's made 83% of his field goals, All-American after his sophomore year, made five of five in a near upset of Georgia last year, and earlier this season hit an SEC record 61-yarder to beat then number 15 Kansas State. But Mevis is best known for his girth. He's listed at 5'11", 243 which prompted a teammate to give him a nickname, the Thicker Kicker. That's T-H-I-C-C-E-R. Last year, Mevis applied with the U.S. Trademark and Patent Office for trademarks on Thicker Kicker and his other nickname, Money Mevis, for use on apparel. Also in 2021, Campus Bar and Grill in Columbia added to its menu the Thicker Kicker Burger, Two patties, four strips of bacon, Colby Jack cheese, a fried onion ring, lettuce, tomato, and a sweet chipotle mayo sauce selected by Mevis himself. But I just went to order from Grubhub and the Thicker Kicker Burger is not on the menu. So I called the restaurant and it turns out that the Thicker Kicker Burger was an NIL deal with Mevis. The guy who answered the phone said that the burger was on the menu for the 2021 and 22 seasons but Campus Barn Grill's owner did not re-up with Mevis for wow. 2023. That's great reporting. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little, little original yeah. reporting there early morning. I'm glad someone picked up the phone there. I had to, I had to wait through about 20 rings. So a little disappointed that you can't get the Thicker Kicker Burger, though. Do you think that Cameron Dicker, the former Texas kicker now with the Chargers, known as Dicker the Kicker, feels threatened that his rhyme scheme might be challenged if the thicker kicker joins Dicker the kicker in the NFL. Seems like they might want to get together and form their own company. Go back to that U.S. uh, trademark office for the uh, thicker dicker kicker line of clothing. (laughs) I don't know if that one will uh, pass the... Thicker dicker kicker. I don't know if if that one will pass the safe for work filter, Stefan, but we can work Mm. on it. It might not. Josh, what's your thicker kicker burger? I don't see that many television commercials these days, thanks to the magic of DVR and so forth. But live sports are the one exception, which is a big reason why rights fees for all these leagues are still so astronomically high. Uh, But anyway, commercials. Last month during the WNBA finals, I took note of this ad for Deloitte, starring current and former WNBA players Diana Taurasi, Sylvia Fowles, and LSU's own Teresa Plaisance. Let's listen. There she is, Jade Ross. Best CTO in the game. Her cyber defense is fire. Yeah, but Emily Foster? Corporate finance queen of Kansas City? Wait, 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 hold up. 
Is that Lucy Carter? CEO man, she just looked right at me. I love you, Lucy. You had such a great Q4. Can we take a selfie, please? <laughs> Where'd you get that photo? Your LinkedIn profile. Can I have your coffee, sleeve? That is just one in a series of ads, including one in which Tarasi brags that she has a CEO, a CRO, two VPs of sale, and a CTO on her, I guess, business fantasy team. But wait, there's more. Check out this spot, which has been in heavy rotation in recent weeks. Travis Kelsey. Wow, you're Brian Halsey. Perfect payment history. I worship you, man. It's all the Experian Smart Money debit card. It has a digital checking account that can build credit without the debt. I know. Get your Experian Smart Money account through the free app. I worship you. <laughs> can you imagine Travis Kelsey on a TV commercial? Crazy. Uh, the gag is the same as that WNBA ad. Athletes geeking out over quote-unquote regular people. A role reversal, if you will. The old switcheroo. It's a clever twist on obsessive sports fandom, or depending on how much of a hater you are, it's a not-that-clever-twist, considering that Peyton Manning was doing this way back in 2004. Say it with me. Say it with me. Here we go. Let's go, insurers and justice. Let's go. Grill. Let's go, insurers and justice. Let's $80. Go. Cut that meat. Sandwich. Cut that meat. Six dollars. Cut that meat. Gas. And it's full. Twenty dollars. You're my favorite accountant, Tommy. Please, Johnny. Please, you're on my fantasy team. You're my favorite worker. Fans. Yes. Woo. Priceless. There are some things money can't buy. For everything else, there's Mastercard. Never gonna wash his hand. Right here. Look at that. I should note that in January 2005, Patriots fans serenaded the then Colts quarterback with cut that meat chance during New England's 20 to 3 playoff win over Indianapolis. Also, like the Deloitte ads, that MasterCard commercial was part of a series. There was another one where Peyton begged a grocery store stalker to sign my melon, which also is chantable. Sign my melon. Sign, you know, mm. try, it, try it at home. My point is that this inversion of how fandom works is played out. Uh, take note, America's corporations and uh, ad companies. But I do have some good news. With just one small twist, it is possible to take this cliche and spin it into something exciting and new. Baker Mayfield, show them how it's done. I would love to show up to somebody's cubicle and just boo the shit out of them. <laughs> yeah. And see and watch watch them crumble. Ten thousand people. No, I'm wrong. This bad, guy sucks. Bad, I'm wrong sale. for saying bad that. Sale. I'm wrong for saying that. We talk but. about that all the time, though. We said that on the show. I've said that literally yeah. on the show. Can you imagine? Verbatim. Verbatim. That is from a podcast called You Never Know. In April 2022, Mayfield was frustrated because his then-team, the Cleveland Browns, just made a mega-deal to get Deshaun Watson, if you recall. As we discussed earlier in the show, sometimes bros are just being dudes and say things on podcasts. Mayfield did predictably get a huge amount of backlash for saying he wanted to boo fans. But what I think is that he should have gotten credit for bringing a fresh idea to a stale advertising genre. So ad wizards, please take this idea. The next time Diana Taurasi is talking about some businesswoman, I hope it's to tell us that she missed her Q4 numbers, that she steals sandwiches from the lunchroom, and that she types way too loudly, and everyone in the office hates her. Would that help sell products or financial services? I don't know. I'm just the idea guy. I trust that you're smart enough to figure it out, or maybe you're not, in which case I will come to your office and boo you. Can I add that the difference between Peyton Manning's commercials and the more recent commercials that you play, Josh, is that Peyton Manning is really good at acting, 
and the reads from Travis Kelsey at all were, I think the, uh, the professional term is wooden. You know, sometimes you call a person a tryhard and it's an insult, but with Peyton Manning, like it really is like, oh no, no, no. It actually is a good thing that that dude gives a hundred percent effort all the time. My favorite quarterback uh, my, well, I, actually, I'm sorry. I think he's the best NFL quarterback of all time up until I saw Patrick Mahomes. Uh, and I'm no Mayfield fan, but I, I do think some, maybe even a lot of fans deserve to be booed. I think we can all agree with that. <laughs> I don't think the WNBA players were that bad. Travis Kelsey can be in his own Travis Kelsey's a little bit stiff. <laughs> that is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. Would never boo him. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. It might boo you, probably not. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty. Cheer him. And thanks for listening. <laughs>